daughter's face lit up when she heard face painting. What if we did like a raffle? No, hold on. Let me hear me out here real quick. If you're like, how much would it take to shave my beard to then have my face painted? I got a big nope. Do I have five dollars? Ten dollars? Oh, Jonathan's willing to pay ten bucks to have me. Oh. <laughs> well, good morning, Northgate Community Church. How are you all doing today? Man, I had a kind of an exciting week this last week. I don't know if you saw some of the pictures that I posted on the internet, but I drove to Austin, Texas. That's right. Cray cray. And uh, here are some just quick superficial things, uh, things that I learned about going to Austin, Texas and driving there. One, never do that. Never drive to Austin. <laughs> that I do not advise. That was like 50 hours of just pl plainness. Like there's literally nothing there. And second of all, I can no longer eat uh, any more almonds or apples for at least six months. Because that's pretty much all that I had for snacks the entire time because I was trying to go very basic. But this time with Austin was actually pretty fun, right? I was going there for a purpose. I was going to go hang out with my buddy Brent, who turned 40, and we were able to enjoy some of Austin's best barbecue, some of the best in the country. It was so good, in fact, that we had to, there was one spot that we got up really early in the morning. Again, I had been driving for like 13 and a half hours each day. Got up super early in the morning to get in line at 7.30 in the morning to line up. And we weren't even the first people there. There were 75 people in front of us. But it was a good time. Like, I really enjoyed it. But the question that I a lot of times got leading up to this, and my mom, to her credit, here we go, mom, you ready? To her credit, tried to help me. She tried to save me from this drive because I underestimated exactly how long it was going to take. She she's like, I will pay for your plane ticket. It'll be southwest. It'll be beautiful. <laughs> But I was like, you know what? At the end of the day, that would have been really cool. But there was something about this drive that I had to do. Like, there was something about this particular journey that I had to engage with, that I had to sit with. And I had to sit with the Lord, and I knew that there was something that was going to come from this particular drive that couldn't have been accomplished in a three- or four-hour flight to Austin and back. In fact, this drive it was actually taken by, a uh, similar drive was taken by my mentor, Bill Ludwig. And I remember him when he drove from Ashland. Tiffany, wasn't it from Ashland to California? And he was driving all over the place. Now, he did his a little differently. Um, he did it without any music whatsoever. Listened to absolutely nothing on the drive all over the country. I have a little bit of, a, a, uh, I can't even say, ADHD probably. I couldn't just listen to nothing. But hearing him and the ways that he connected with Jesus on this drive inspired me to go do a similar thing. And having given the option to fly, I knew that I had to drive. There was something compelling about this drive. I was waiting for some kind of revelation. And let me tell you, it didn't happen really immediately, in fact. In fact, I was kind of like upset. I was like, it's two o'clock in the morning, Jesus. This is where you're supposed to talk to me. I made some also bad driving decisions, so that's a whole nother take, though. 
But on the drive out, it, I was very tired. In fact, I was very just kind of like waiting for this light bulb moment because that's how a lot of times I feel like Jesus works. He's, he's on my schedule, right? I think that's a lot of times how we oftentimes think. Jesus is on my time schedule. So I roll into Austin, have some delicious barbecue, and I'm actually meeting somebody really for like the second time, one of Brent's friends, and uh, it was kind of like an instant kind of like, I'm supposed to talk to you kind of situation. Like I'm supposed to have this conversation with him. And uh, we ended up talking, you know, just about life and stuff like that, really cool guy. And then one night, one of the nights, we're just kind of hanging out at this, again, this is probably the nicest Airbnb that I've ever stayed at. It was, there's four of us there. It was designed for at least 15 or 20 people. So we had like this whole thing set up for ourselves, and we had this beautiful pool area. I don't know if you noticed, but I got my winter base ready to go for Christmas, so I'm ready to go there. And we're sitting in this kind of patio area, and he asks a question. Again, I had already been driving for a bunch of days. I was kind of already tired. I had a time change that also affected me, and that was kind of a jarring as well. But he asked this question. He goes, what are you looking forward to when you get back home? And it was kind of crazy because I immediately knew what the answer was, at least for me. A new normal. And I think that's something at this time of the year, uh, because I don't know if you knew this, oh, I didn't know this when I left to Austin, but uh, Austin was like 90 degrees. It was practically summer there. And then when I drove back into Manteca, it was like 73 degrees. Like the seasons had changed in between me going and leaving Austin. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, I went hiking with some friends, and somebody said, I could smell fall in the air, and this is just how curmudgeon I am. I go, I don't smell anything. <laughs> I don't smell anything at all. But seasons change, and that's nature's way of telling us that things are on the horizon. And the question that I, I want to ask myself and for us today is what new normal needs to be adopted going into this next season? And in the context of we are wrapping this series about how to get ready for the holidays, right? When we think about Thanksgiving, when we think about Christmas and all the chaos that comes with all those events, what are some new normals that need to be adopted? What is something that is harboring our hearts that Jesus wants to release? And where we're actually going to end today is how do we become people of peace during this rather chaotic time in our world today? So this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture here. Ready? We're going to Mark chapter 10, verses 17, 17 through 22. And I'm going to do something that I probably have never done in a, ever, is I'm going to split this passage up in two different translations. I think we can do that, right? We could do that? Okay. So the first translation, the verses 17 through 20, is going to be in the CSB translation. And then verses 21 through 22 is going to be the message translation. So what we're going to see in these two specific stories is Jesus meeting people at a certain time of their life that they needed something to be changed. And we're going to see how Jesus responds. We're going to see how the person and people respond to these particular encounters. So Mark chapter 10, 
verses 17 through 20. We're going to start reading here. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question, right? Excellent question. Jesus replies, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except for God alone. He says, you, can, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. Now, we're going to stop right there because we're going to switch over to the message translation. On paper, at face value, these are phenomenal baseline norms, right? What do we got here? Do not commit murder. Check. That's probably pretty good for us to adopt, right? We shouldn't be murdering people. Well, okay, we got a maybe back there. Okay, well, that's between you and the Lord. Do not commit adultery. Yeah, that's a good one. Good baseline norm. Do not steal. Man, that's a good one. Do not bear false witness. I mean, that's kind of another good one. Do not defraud. Man, a good one. And I guess we should honor our father and our mother. Isn't that right, Nancy? These are phenomenal baseline norms. Again, this kind of reminds me of this idea of traditions, right? We all have traditions in our family during this time of the year. Now, I kind of grew up in a, in a way that had very few traditions, right? We were very basic, I would say, right? Christmas time, the Christmas tree would show up like a week before Christmas. I think I've shared this before, you know, there's not a lot of decorating. So, and that kind of, you know, I get a little, uh, I was talking to T on the ride home. I was like, you know, I tend to get like really Scrooge McDucky like this time of the year because I married the exact opposite person, which it's like, if there were Christmas trees to purchase right now, we probably would have one. And that one would die, and we'd have to buy another one. So we'd be a two Christmas tree family and that kind of stuff, right? But traditions are good, right? For those of us who, like, did some um, pumpkin carving last night, that's a phenomenal tradition, right? A great time of community, a great time having fun, sharing stories, eating chili dogs, and just having a great time. Baseline norms, our norms are okay, but I think Jesus also calls us into these times where of seasons, just as we're experiencing right now in the fall time, just as we're experiencing as we're going to make a shift into Thanksgiving and Christmas, and it's just going to be insane. So how do we prepare our hearts for that season? Again, Jesus did not rebuke him for keeping those laws, those traditions, those norms. So we're going to switch over to the message translation. Uh, verses 21 through 22 here. Jesus looked him hard in the eye and loved him. He said, there's one thing left. Go sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth then will be... Oh, sorry about that, folks. Oh, here we go. We're going to start over here. Perfect. We're going to start that over. Verse 21, Jesus looked him hard in the eye and loved him. He said, there's one thing left. Go sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth will then be heavenly wealth and come follow me. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. Man, I can't even tell you how many times in the church I heard a sermon and they said, you need to go sell everything you want, right? We've probably heard that 
kind of version of this particular story. But let's see how Jesus also says. Let's see the response here. Verse 22 says, the man's face clouded over. This was the last thing he expected to hear, and he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. So I have some thoughts about this particular passage. I have some questions. Again, this is going to be a pretty questiony, rhetorical question type of sermon. I'm not going to give too many points. So these are really going to be things that we ask ourselves during this time. And the first question that came to my mind was, have you ever looked a person in the eyes before? Like, have you ever stared at somebody in the eyes before? Now, if you ever have a significant other, like my wife and I, we used to stare in our, and we probably do stare in our eyes, sometimes it's in, you know, she's like, you better go take that out. But, but when we stare in the eyes of somebody, this, is, this, this might not be rhetorical, actually. When we stare in the eyes of somebody, what happens? Shout it out. What was that? Okay, okay. There's a little bit of submission. All right, mutual. Okay. Uncomfortable. Yeah, that's a good one. All right. Anxiety. Well, okay, we're looking good. Okay, what was that, Jonathan? Intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little uncomfortable. I, I actually struggle with eye communication. In fact, a lot of times when I preach, I'm not usually looking at people most of the times. This is actually look just right above your heads, right? Just right above them, right? I had a friend who called me out one time. He says, you're not looking at me. And I go, oh, yeah, okay. Like, I'll, I'll look at you. I'll look at you when I'm talking. Because a lot of times, because that is uncomfortable, right? And as humans, we kind of got this kind of unique thing. Um, we have, like, whites of our eyes, right? And there's something about the whites of our eyes that creates a connection, that when we look at each other, there's a certain sense of, like, vulnerability that goes with that. There's a certain level of connection. There's empathy and passion that grows from this eye contact. So, to me, it's, it's like super, this is why I love this uh, message version, is because as, uh, as it has been translated, Jesus looked hard into his eyes, it's like he's looking through this person. We're going to get to that here in a little bit. Because being seen matters. Jesus sees this person. He sees all the things that are happening behind the scenes. He sees all of the material possession. Sure, sure, he has a lot of things, but we all know, right? We've been in church long enough to know it's not about the fact that he had a bunch of stuff, Right? It was about where his heart was at at this, at this particular time. Jesus was ready to disrupt this person's current normal, his current norm. And so what was his response? This is kind of an interesting, again, this is why I love this translation. Verse 22, we're going to reread it. It says, the man's face clouded over. This was the last thing he expected to hear, and he walked off with a heavy heart. I, mean, I kind of relate to that because as I was driving to Austin, on the way there, I was just like, 
oh, what? That's, I'm not hearing anything. I'm getting no response. So this man with his face clouded over, I could relate to that. But this is the part that I think that was kind of compelling, that was definitely compelling to me. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. So for this new season, as we think about all of the traditions that we've grown up in and with, because I don't know if you know this about like seasons and like holidays, if this is, it's like, it's rough, right? Like going into Thanksgiving and going into Christmas and beyond, these are not generally super low energy, low cost times of the year. And a lot of times that brings up at least in my own life, things that maybe I hold on too tightly. Restrain, uh, and that's the question that I oftentimes ask myself during this particular season, is what are the bah humbug things, Scrooge McDuck things, that I need to be able to be, let, that I need to let go of? Jesus sends us out with love to this new normal. And that's the thing I love about this particular passage is Jesus didn't rebuke him for keeping the traditions of ore. No, no, no. He looked deeply into this man's eyes, saw his heart, asked for something relatively simple, but wasn't just going to leave him hanging there. He was going to send this person with love. Jesus looks as hard in the eyes, I wrote this, Jesus looks as hard in the eyes with the deepest of empathy and compassion and says, you should let me handle this. Let me give you my love and peace. And like I mentioned before, one of the biggest hurdles, at least I feel, in this particular uh, time of the year is, man, we got like Thanksgiving and Christmas and all these different kinds of things that are happening all at the same time. Now again, spending time with friends and family, totally cool love it. But I don't know about you, but like family drama, like we all got that in our lives, right? We've already heard about unrealistic expectations from people, guilt of meeting those expectations. Again, there's pain, grief, hurt, and remembering those that we wish were at the table that aren't anymore. This time of the year brings up a lot of emotions. It brings up a lot of feelings, and that's okay, that is absolutely okay. We're going to look at what I think might be one of the remedies and one of the things that might be missing in this particular time of the year, and that's being a person of peace. Now let's go ahead and flip over to Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. I'm reading this out of the CSB translation. Again, this should be a pretty familiar passage of Scripture. It reads like this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them ahead of them in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among the wolves. Don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. 
whatever house you enter first, say peace to this household. We're going to stop right there. So we see Jesus doing this uh, sending out again. He did it first with his 12 disciples, and then he's doing it with the 72. And again, if this isn't going to rattle and shake people up, again, what does he say? I'm sending you out like lambs amongst the wolves. And Jesus is, tr- is teaching these new disciples what it looks like to follow him. This is the new normal for following Jesus. And again, when I was thinking about this drive and driving, actually, when I was driving back, I was thinking about this idea of like taking nothing. That's why I kind of went super light on my trip to Austin. Just almonds and apples. Just almonds and apples. Didn't take much money with me. Literally just needed money for gas. And this is kind of this, this verse 6 that we're going to go into, because I've read this passage a bunch of times before, and I've had it preached at me a bunch of times before too, and had mentors and folks um, commentate about what this means. And I think this morning, I, I think I could, maybe flip the perspective. So we're going to read verse 6. He says, If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. So traditionally, the focus of this particular passage is the disciples, which is totally appropriate, right? We see Jesus sending out the 72, learning the ways of the rabbi, real world, boots on the ground, training, which is great. Not just book smart. They had to be street smart. But there's this, again, this, this little verse that's tucked in between this passage. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. I think that that's something that's missing in our very Western season. So in this particular passage, it calls the disciples to go find the person of peace. It makes me wonder if maybe we're supposed to be the person of peace. Like, there are people that are sent to go, but I do feel that there are people that are supposed to be that person. And what does that actually look like? What is this person of peace actually, like, what's a characteristic? It brings peace between people. Someone who provides a safe space, not bringing havoc or war, or maybe we might call that drama. Someone who brings tranquility to a table. Again, if we think about this idea of, of a table, like if we think about all the folks that sit around our table during this time of the year, it, there's a lot of story there. There's a lot of history there. There might be a little bit of tension there. And what I think in this particular passage, as we think about this person of peace, this new norm for this season, is what does it look like to bring the peace of God to the table? What does it look like to be that person in our community at our dinner tables? Because let's think about this for a second here. 
how many people are going to be going in and out of our houses during this time of the year? Probably a lot. Probably a lot. And how many of those folks that are in and out of our houses need a new normal, need a new perspective? And what if, what if the peace that they need so desperately is found only at your table? What does, that, what does that look like? Because again, this time of the year, it gets hectic. I mean, how many of us, I mean, I don't usually partake in this, but how many of us do the Black Friday thing, right? How many of us have ever done that? Yeah. I've done it. It's a nightmare. It's not super great at all. One of the things, and we're going to be landing the plane here in just a little bit, one of the things that I oftentimes have done in the past is uh, write what I kind of consider guided meditations or even prophetic poetry. And what I'd like to do is just take a couple minutes so the worship team can come on up here, uh, is to take some time and kind of sit with this, this kind of poetic letter here. And if you're unfamiliar with how some of this works, it works pretty simple. We're just going to sit, and I'm going to read some things, and then the worship team's going to take it away. Uh, th- the way that I oftentimes write this type of material is it's pretty ambiguous. And there's not very many direct statements, but what it does is it creates a space for us to be able to hear something that maybe we haven't heard before in a, in a way that is just different. So at this time, what I'd like for us to do is just kind of get in a nice relaxing spot, and if you would like to, you can close your eyes. We could take a big deep breath in, and take a big deep breath out. And as we think about this idea of the person of peace, we think, I think about this idea of who we bring to the table. And that was kind of one of the focus parts of this. So I call this the table. The table we set is important because it shows our hearts. It reveals who's in and who's out, who we hold with deep empathy and compassion and those who are not worthy to dine. It holds space for traditions that were once relevant and brought security and familiarity, but no longer are sufficient. They are empty vessels now. It bears the weight of expectation from those who are now ghosts to the past that tethers us to the stake of insecurity. The table instead should be a great equalizer There is no us or them. It holds empathy and compassion for all. It holds the stories of those with deep reverence. It seeks a new tradition that is filled with freedom and beauty, unencumbered by ghosts of our past. It asks us, it asks for us to loosen our grip of control, 
familiarity, comfort, and ego, and to experience the feast that is set before us, because we cannot eat with closed fists. The table is a place of peace and tranquility. Everyone is welcome, no matter where they're on their journey. They are welcome to take a seat, observe, try the wine, nibble at the bread, and experience this distant feeling. With the host sitting at the head spot, he looks hard into the eyes of those sitting at the table. Those eyes seem to look through me. It knows me deeply, even the things I've never said out loud. But it doesn't matter here, because I am loved at this table. I am loved at this table. Let me pray for us here. Heavenly Father, as we close this time, Lord, I just pray that we would continue to focus on you. Lord, we sang earlier today how you release us from things. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we enter this new season, that you would search our hearts, that you would look hard into our eyes and see the child that we desperately want to be, that you see. Lord, throughout all the chaos that we will indefinitely endure during this time, that we would be the people of peace to all the situations, that we would be the comfort and the tranquility, that the table that we set would be open to those who otherwise wouldn't be welcomed. Father, I thank you for your word that you've given us. I thank you for the many generations that have gone before us and those who will follow us after. That your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray this in your name. Amen.